Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I wanted to start this show by expressing my sincere gratitude to all of you for listening to this show, sending me emails, leaving us honest reviews on iTunes. And I wanted to invite those of you who didn't get a chance to write us a review on iTunes to invite you to do it. It's really helpful for us to reach a broader audience. And also it's helpful for me to see what are some of the topics that you guys are interested each week I get around like 10, 12 emails and I usually go based on the topics that those listeners are requesting. So if there is a question that you have, if there's a topic you want to learn more about, it would be fantastic if you mention it in the review or you can email me at drmoali at sexologypodcast.com. I am very excited about our conversation today with Dr. Joe Court. We're going to talk about the difference between gay men and a straight man who is drawn to gay sex. I know some of you guys might be skeptical thinking, okay, if a man having sex with another man is probably gay and this might be just him not being comfortable with the label of identifying as gay man. But I recently got familiar with Dr. Joe Court book. It was recommended to me by one of my supervisor who was supervising me for sex therapy. And it was fascinating to see that sometimes how reductionistic is our attitude towards sexual orientation. And there's so many things that contributes to one's 
uh, sexuality. So we're definitely going to talk further about it in our show today. Dr. Joe Court is a licensed sex and relationship therapist. He specializes in sex therapy, LGBTQ issues, and imago relationship therapy. He's the author of four books, 10 Smart Things Gay Men Can Do to Improve Their Lives, 10 Smart Things Gay Men Can Do to Find Real Love, LGBTQ Clients in Therapy, and Is My Husband Gay, Straight, or Bi? A Guide for Women's Concern About Their Men. This is the one, the first book that I read by Dr. Cord and kind of blew my mind about how insightful was the content. So I highly recommend this one. All of them are great. This was specifically very helpful for my practice. He's a regular blogger for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post. He's on the teaching faculty of the University of Michigan's Sexual Health Certificate Program. Here's my conversation with Dr. Joe Court. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm honored and excited to have Dr. Joe Court join us today. Dr. Joe, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So just for our listeners to know, we had this great 10 minutes conversation and halfway through it, I realized that I don't see the call recorder because of some technical changes. So we're re-recording and I'm so sorry, Dr. Joe, <laughs> for the inconvenience. Not a problem, nope. So, uh, I could definitely be better at answering it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was uh, sharing with our listeners about your book during the introduction that how much I love it and how much I feel it's useful for therapists and general population. So thank you for writing it. Yeah, thank you very much. I, made, I purposely wrote it so that women and could understand their husbands, husbands could understand themselves, and then the therapists could work with them individually and as a couple. I, it purposely is for everyone. For me, at least, it was super helpful because I work with couples and I don't know, is it my practice? Because I work with, like, I'm bilingual therapists and I often see that many of my clients in both population, Iranian population and non-Iranian population, that's a question that come up often. So I'm excited oh, yeah. to, yeah, to delve in more into this topic. So one of the things you're talking about it on the book, talk you're mentioned and talking about the straight men who are drawn to gay sex, but they're not gay. So what is the difference between gay men and a straight man who's drawn to gay sex? Yep. So when straight men have sex with men, they're not attracted to the actual guy in general. They're attracted to the gay sex to the experience that they're having sexually with the guy. There are some straight men that are attracted to the guy and to the gay sex, but it doesn't generalize other guys. It's specifically this one guy they're in front of. Gay men are attracted to all men, or they just generalize to other men, not all men, but you know, to men they're attracted to, and including the guy they're in front of and to gay sex. So it's a compartmentalization, really, for a straight guy to be interested in gay sex. That makes he's, but he's mostly and only attracted to women. He's not attracted to men. Just this particular man or this particular gay sex act in specifically. That is so interesting. So it's just they not into like interested in all men. They're more interested in this specific act or this specific person. Yeah. So it might be like incidental or episodic, where suddenly they're engaged in some friendship or they're in business situation or some kind of a sports situation where this guy just catches their eye and there's some chemistry between the two of them. 
And these kind of men, and the younger men that are admitting this these days, they're called, they call themselves heteroflexible, right? So that they're interesting. Yeah, and they don't really have a lot of shame about it. They're like, yeah, there's something about it. We kind of had gay sex together, and that was it. And it's over. And then they go back to their straight lives. They're not, they're not guys who are like, well, I want, you know, now I'm gay, and I'm looking at other guys. There are some men, the ones that come to me, who um, then, then do worry, does that make me gay? Because in our culture, right, if you have gay sex and you're a man, you're gay. And I was telling you the story that I was at a dinner party where this guy, everybody knows my work. I'm at a social function dinner event. This guy puts his fork down, looks right at me across the table and says, Joe, if a guy has gay sex, he's gay. I don't care what you say. And I looked at him and I said, but if a woman has sex with another woman, what do you call that then? And he said, I call that college. You know? And the table right. laughed. We all laughed. Like, Yes, we give women this window of permission, but we don't give men the same. That's ridiculous. They deserve the same. Right. And that is so interesting because people, when it comes to sexual orientation for women, they're more flexible. But for men, this is just the rigid definition of what does the straight men look like, what kind of sex he does, what kind of partner he has. So that's interesting. What do you think? What, why is the, this gender gap in, in that area? I think because men in general, I was to say heterosexual men and even bisexual men, can, can eroticize uh, women being sexual with other women. So it's not as, uh, they don't have a disgust response in the way that straight men would have a disgust response to two men, right? Because then they imagine themselves with another man and it's upsetting for them. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is when women have sex with women, they're not stepping up or stepping down. It's a lateral move. But when men have sex with men, in our culture, and really around the country even often, it's a step down. Now you've moved toward the, uh, it's misogynist really, like you're more like a woman, you know? So right. you're, that's what it is. And I, and I see that in my office with the wives and girlfriends who are married to these guys. They see them as less of a man because they've now stepped down. Right, and it's interesting that how much culture plays into that. You're right, people eroticize lesbian women porn or women with another woman kind of erotica and porn, but you're right, like, you know, just this negative connotation and attitude toward like gay men who are having sex with another man. So you're right, part, a big part of it is like from our society. Cultural, totally. So what are some of the factors that may lead a straight man to be drawn to gay sex? So I uh, kind of itemize them in the book. And I also, by the way, have a website called Straight Guys. It's straight, it's S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. And then guys is G-U-I-S-E. So it's not G-U-I-S, it's straight guys, like a disguise, you know, because right. I wanted straight to understand and I list them there. The most common ones that the men come into my office, they have interest in anal sex. And they're too afraid to tell their spouses or their girlfriends. They're also um, too afraid to, or they have told them and they feel like there's been a negative response. And so they want to receive anal sex. They don't want to do it with another woman because they feel like that's cheating. So they're willing to do it with men who will penetrate them so they can receive anal sex. And it's not about the guy. They're not thinking about the guy. They're not in love with the guy. They're not having fantasies about the guy. They're only interested in receiving and enjoying anal sex. And then it's over. Well, another reason is some men have been sexually abused and traumatized by a male perpetrator in childhood. So they're doing what we call as therapists, trauma reenactment. They're returning to the scene of the sexual crime over and over and over again. So this isn't about gay sex either. This is about trauma reenactment. And it's gotten eroticized. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's one of my favorite kind of concepts because I see it in all around with all kind of sexual behaviors that sometimes it is an enactment of reenactment of the what happened earlier in life. And I know you, in the book you're talking about there is a different dynamic. It's not necessarily a pleasure after birth uh, associated with it or kind of feeling of satisfaction and contentment. Is that accurate? Yes. Well, say more. What do you mean? satisfaction about what so you talked about i remember there was in the book there was this wonderful story of the the man who was acting out this specific scenario with the guy who from the craigslist and you were talking about that how he didn't want it to stay afterward it wasn't like you know the usual like satisfaction you get after a sexual relationship with someone he was like doing it more as as far as like you know see he was drawn to it but it wasn't necessarily a kind of attraction or satisfaction in the traditional sense? Am I getting it right? Or you had different thing in mind? No, you're right. So that, so that they're, they're only interested in the gay sex, not the, not the man. Is that what you mean? Right, right. That's part yeah. of it. And also you talk about how it's kind of uh, was connected for him with earlier experiences that he had. Yes, right. Sometimes it's father hunger, I call it, where the men have had, uh, where they weren't father, they longed for their father, they longed for male connection connection they're not sports guys they're not you know they're not the kind of guys good old boy kind of guys where they are fraternal or whatever and so in their in interest in looking to bond with other men they sexualize it right and then right men that call themselves i've had clients actually call themselves cash sexuals where they're very happy to have sex with men as long as they're paid it's the cash that gets them aroused not the guy right and there are some men that even do porn they'll do gay porn and have sex with other men in porn for the cash and for the, the uh, exhibitionism of it. But again, it's not about being attracted to men. Right. And I, I, I was very interested when you talked about, you know, how part of it is like people want to have anal sex and like anal sex can be pleasurable for both genders. So it's not only like, you know, for men or women, but then because of like part of it is taboo of talking about it with the partner talking, as you mentioned. And also it's just like so challenging to introduce that in the relationship so I, I can I can see that might be one of the elements so so much shame people have you know absolutely yeah yeah and like how would you introduce it especially in more traditional couples because I mean I'm fortunate I work in LA but you know it's just even in some of the couple I work with it's just so challenging to introduce non-vanilla kind of sexual behavior in the relationships right and on top of it it's non-vanilla and it's with men and women often have a disgust response, and they can't, they, they see that, I, at first when I wrote the book, and I started writing about this and doing this work, I thought, women are going to be first upset that they're going to get an STI, or HIV, or AIDS, and right. that's not what the first thing is, the first thing is, are you gay, and are you going to leave me, and are you in love with this man, and so that's what we have to go first, that's their betrayal responses, what is, and then they think that they've contributed to it, or caused it, and, you know, you've probably seen this with women when there's infidelity. They think they contributed, they caused it, now they have to be more sexual with a partner. And um, that's not the case here. This is often this guy's individual issue that's contributing to why he's having sex with men. Right. And uh, one thing that I think you're talking about in the book, and that's fantastic, is about uh, the feeling of like a betrayal and also feeling of like, you know, I'm going to lose my partner because... What I see often in couples that when they, there's this discovery, there's digital discovery or like the partner calls and they realize that their husband or partner been with another man, they kind of assume that, okay, the verdict is out, he's gay, 
and then it's whether I can live with a gay man or or not. So instead of kind of being curious about what's going on and kind of exploring it with a therapist. Yes, right. Yep, because that's the first thing they think about, and then they think he's gay, and um, sometimes he's not. He's bisexual, he's straight, he's fluid, that kind of thing. Right. So what are, how are compulsive behaviors kind of plays into it? How are compulsive behaviors different than sexual attraction? So the compulsions are like more like we talked about the trauma reenactment where they are compulsively reenacting that trauma, reenacting the the same way they were sexually abused. I've had guys, they may have been forced to give uh, oral sex to an adult male or an older brother or an uncle, you know, total abuse situation. And then as they get older, they seek out other men to give oral sex. And they're not really, they'll, they'll do it and it might be erotic for them. But it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel good to them because it's not about their orientation. It's about abuse. So they've eroticized the abuse and it becomes compulsive until they come to therapy and the the therapist helps them recognize you're doing this because of what happened to you as a child. And then once we do some healing around the sexual abuse work, the compulsiveness around doing the behavior goes away. So I always say, instead of it managing you, you will learn to manage it. Right. It's just such a wonderful way of putting it and kind of reducing the stigma around it. And also when I think about compulsivity, I think about out of sexual, out of control sexual behavior. Some people call it sexual addiction. And I think about, you know, the diverse behavior that people kind of get drawn to and they want to experiment. How do you see that this thing in that light? Well, if it can become out of control sexual behavior, or what people will call sexual addiction. I mean, I don't like that term because it's, it's a garbage can term for uh, a lot of different things in our culture, and it doesn't really tell you what's going on. Out of control sexual behavior, the guy comes in, and, and often what you see is it might be something he wants to do and he likes to do, but he's struggling against it. So he's gone to war with his sexual urges, sexual, orient, sexual interest. And um, there's a great line from a, a therapist named Jack Moran, late therapist, he's now deceased, and he says, if you go to war with your sexuality, you'll lose and cause more chaos in your life than you started. And so basically, now this person, is the chaos is repetitive, compulsory. He's at war with himself. He might have a high amount of shame about what he wants to do. And so the shame turbocharges compulsive sexual behavior. And sometimes it's because he's, he is gay, he is bi, or he is kinky. And the, the kink includes gay sex. And um, he can't handle that. He's riddled with shame, and he is trying to shut it down. And um, it it then contributes to feeling out of control, even though if he could just accept it, he'll he'll gain control. I love that. I haven't read about that part. Like, I haven't heard that piece. And you're so right with, like, you know, toxic shame around sexuality. And I grew up in a, like, more kind of conservative community, and I've noticed that the more people try to repress things around sexuality, the more things come up and things can turn to this like toxic cycle of shame and frustration and it can hijack different aspects of their lives. Right. Totally. And people don't understand that. And then there's a lack of education of what's normal or not normal. And really there is no normal. Normal is what's normal for you, which is what the therapist's responsibility is to do, is to help the client understand that for them. Right. And understanding it can be so powerful. And at times when behaviors are not serving people, it's helped them to kind of reduce the intensity and attraction to that specific 
behavior. So one thing I was very interested in the, that you talked about in the book is like about like sexual orientation and sexual abuse. And this is the area that you work with clients, majority of like most of the clients that you, it seems yes. like, you know, that's a question that they have. So can sexual abuse ch- change someone's sexual orientation? Absolutely not. Here's my tagline. Sexual abuse will disorient you. It will not orient you. So I'll Love say it that. again. Yep. Sexual abuse will disorient you. It will not orient you. It cannot create a gay, straight, bi, any lesbian. It cannot create an orientation. What it does instead is the perpetrator, their sexuality is eclipsing and the abuse and trauma eclipses the victim's sexuality. So now there's an overlay and they can't find their own sexuality because the abuse and trauma are, you know, covering it up. That is just so true because I, I sometimes find that when people are like an old partner questioning their partner sexual orientation, one of those things that kind of they like wrongly kind of hold on to is like, oh, he was abused. That's why he's gay. And it's just that's not how our sexual orientation works. And you know, in the book you talk about that's something that we are born with or something that's at birth, like we're, we're kind of either kind of part of the specific sexual orientation, which is a continuum and galaxy. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I would say that that is correct. Absolutely. Okay. So what are some common kinds that are often confused like with being gay, kind of like behaviors, sexual kinks that get confused with being gay? Well, like for, uh, I do want to say about the anal sex, these guys come in my office and they, they say to me, I must be gay if I like having anal sex and I'm letting guys do this to me. And I jokingly say to them, look, as a certified sex therapist, I'm obligated to tell you that your anus doesn't have a sexual orientation. It doesn't know whether it's gay, straight, or bi, right? It just knows right. it likes pleasure. And there's lots of gay men that never, ever, ever have anal sex. And that doesn't make them straight. It makes them gay men who never like anal sex, you know? Right. We also know there are 20% of straight men that like to watch gay porn. 20%. And that doesn't make them gay. And there are 55% of straight of gay men who like to watch straight porn. And that doesn't make them – it's like we've decided that, you know, if I am looking at things or I desire certain acts, that that, that makes me gay or that makes – that determines my orientation when, in fact, those there can be very separate things. Right. And I know that you talked about in the book that how you had this conservative couples and they were able to kind of – navigate kind of introducing and integrating the anal sex in the relationship and these are such challenging conversations to have what are some of the tools you recommend the partner to kind of to kind of try like the, the person who is like for example the man that is into pegging or anal sex to kind of the ways that they can introduce that to their partner yeah so you, you brought up the term pegging and that's what i've done with these guys who come in and like anal sex is I ask them, did you really tell your spouse, your girlfriend, did she really have a disgust response? Sometimes men are so ashamed that they, they make a little attempt, they see a little bit of, a, of discomfort in her face, and maybe she just has a little bit of gas and a stomach cramp, and that's the face she's making. But he thinks, oh, that means she's not into it. And so could he go back and ask her to put a strap on on to, to uh, do something that's called pegging? And um, you know, then I have them go out and get books on this so they can talk, they have healthy discussions around it, read healthy ways of doing this. And I've actually had success in helping women and men engage in this without him having to go find men to do this with. Right. And again, it's part of it is just being openness to try new things. Obviously, 
as a therapist, I don't want people to continue doing things that I don't find it pleasurable or harmful to their psyche. But at times I feel we have this ideas about how things are. And that idea is kind of stops us from integrating new things in the relationship. Totally. There are four things that I do help couples do uh, to help them understand whether the guy is gay, straight or bi. And I'll tell you, I always jokingly say I'm not a gay whisperer. You know, I'm not here to, if I was a gay whisperer, I'd be rich. I wouldn't have to, I'd be like on, you know, some mountain next to Oprah. You know, I feel like I do have questions, though, that I feel over 33 years of doing this work that can help people go inside and determine. The first question I ask is, does the, the man who's having sex with men have what I call youthful noticing? In other words, do they have childhood memories? So, like, we don't, we teach children only to be heterosexual. So, most people can't remember crushes on boys or, uh, you know, because they couldn't put words to it. There's no language for it for children. When I was a kid, I'm, I'm gay. I was a Cub Scout. I remember getting naked with the other Cub Scouts before we had a shower, before we got in the, went into a swimming pool in the 70s, it was mandatory showers. And I remember being mesmerized by these naked boys my age and not knowing why. In the showers in sixth grade gym, I was mesmerized. I had a crush on this kid named Billy. And I didn't know really what all that was. Looking back, straight men who have sex with men have no youthful noticing. They have no memories like this. There's nothing they can go, oh, that's what that was, nothing. The second thing I ask is homophobia. The gay men are so homophobic, they don't even make it to my office. I'm too gay for them. They, they are looking for therapists to help them see that they're not gay. The straight guy will sit in my office and say, if I'm gay, make me gay. I have nothing against being gay or other gay people. It's the, the fact that I'm having gay sex that doesn't feel right to me that's bothering me. So homophobia doesn't exist in straight men. Youthful noticing doesn't exist. I then move to the beach test because on the beach, your eyes and your sexual desires go naturally to the people that you're drawn to without you even knowing. So for me, I always joke that when I'm on a beach, the women are in the way. I'm looking at your husband. I'm looking at your adult <laughs> brother, your son. You know what I mean? So for the straight men, they're on the beach. They're looking at women. They're not looking at men. They're not. And um, the last question I ask is, who do you want to come home to? Who do you want to wake up next to in the morning? And straight men will always say women. And gay men will always say a man. And I love those kind of like a quick test that you talked about. And I know you talked about it in the book. And it was so fascinating. And it was very revealing. So I think it's just those are great tools. And I want to kind of learn more about the homophobic piece. How would that look like for people who have some tendencies and they kind of have this homophobic presentation? So, yeah, and I do a whole thing on this usually. There's, it's called internalized homophobia. So the very thing that you've been taught to hate your whole life is now you and or discuss, be disgusted by is now you. And so they're going to be distancing themselves. Why do gays have to act like that? I don't want to tell you uh, about that I'm gay, that no one else reveals their sex life to people. You know, like they've confused telling people you're gay with your sex life. And they feel a lot of shame, like they shouldn't be gay, that their, uh, their lives should, are, are going the wrong way. It's against their morals, it's against their religion. And so there's a lot of conflict. And their hope in therapy is for the therapist to say, you know what, I don't think you're really gay. And their hope is to be able to move into a straight, you know, a straight life uh, where gay, where straight men are not like that who are having gay sex because they're not struggling against a gay identity. They're, they're dealing with gay behavior. Gay behavior is what I do. Gay identity is who I am. 
Right. And what an interesting kind of distinction that some people who are like men who are straight, they kind of might be open to kind of exploring it as a one possibility versus the someone who has this homophobic tendency and they're struggling with their sexual orientation and how would they present and the offices and who would they sometimes go to like to the therapists that are not LGBTQ friendly and they have this like conversion techniques that are ridiculous. So it's just very painful to see that. Yep. And, and more and more states are um, making it illegal, which is wonderful. And it's just more abuse to them, uh, because, but they're abusing themselves because they, they're trying to shut this down. And so you're going to see that a lot with the gay men coming into your office. You're not going to see that much at all with the straight guys. Right, right. And one other thing that it was just like interesting to read about it, you talk about how uh, some marriages can survive if a husband is gay. And so I'm just kind of curious about how, how can that be a possibility? So the research is really horrible out there. It's old research, and it says 80% of couples won't make it who are in mixed orientation marriages with one gay spouse and one straight. And that comes from the 80s. It comes from early research, and nobody's picked it up and refreshed it. And I've never bought into that anyways. I mean, okay, there's research, and maybe that's true for many people, but it doesn't mean it's true for the couple sitting with me if that's not what they want. So I take the couples where they're at, and I will say this, the research of 80% not making it is often based on monogamy, right? So we are a monogonormative culture, and we believe the only way we can make it is monogamy. But in a mixed orientation marriage, the gay spouse needs to express that. The bisexual spouse may need to express that. And that takes apart the monogamy. Now, some straight spouses are like, well, then I'm not doing this. They're clear, monogamy or nothing. But if it's nothing... Then, then when the, part, the gay partner says, well, then I, I guess nothing because I have to express it. Well, then I see couples change their mind and go, well, maybe I'll, I'm willing to make it work for a while. Maybe I can stretch into this. So the couples who make it are really the ones who, who change their fidelity agreement openly. Right. And I, I'm glad you talked about like how 80% uh, might not be an accurate representation of what's going on in the society. And because I feel like it gives people, like it kind of uh, shut down the exploring the possibility. And I think even with so many of the clients that I they identify as kind of straight and like sometimes monogamy is not the, like the best option out there. Some people are not, not I, I believe that not everyone is monogamy is a good fit for them and they go out of their marriage or relationship and it's just like the cycles of betrayal it can be very frustrating so from what i'm hearing so you're talking about like in the in the marriages relationship that are not monogamous then people kind of work on agreement that they make they can make it work yes but it's not easy it's brutal i'll tell you i'm working with a couple now i've worked with many couples but i'm thinking of this one where they are really hanging in there with each other but they're struggling really hard with every step that he makes toward a gay life, she is struggles with what that might mean for her. Am I going to lose you? Are you going to have sex with this person and not me? And, and uh, what is this jealousy and attachment, which are all normal feelings. And they are constantly working that through it. It's very hard. And he feels 100% guilty or more and wants to, you know, make it all go away for her. But then, you know, he can't do that over time. He ends up wanting to go back to gay men. So it's just, a, it's really hard. Right. And it, it can be tricky. And that's why it's important to be clear on your boundaries and contracts that you have. And as you said, it's so normal to feel, have this feeling of jealousy and confusion and kind of 
navigating. It's important. But again, there's some marriages that are coming in that I see like the companionship is wonderful. They're great friends. And, you know, there's just like frustration around the sexual piece. That, and part of it, it's because uh, they have this very rigid definition that they learned about what sexuality needs to look like in their marriage. Yes. So not working. And the biggest issue is, because, and they have that mindset, but so does our culture. So if mixed orientation marriages decide to stay together, they have to also often be in the closet because people will judge them. And people have infidelity responses to the couple. How could you stay with somebody who betrayed you? How could you stay with somebody who cheated on you? And so then that judgment weighs heavily on the couple. So they don't tell most people because they don't want that. Absolutely. And then the secrecy can be isolating and can be challenging. I know at least in LA, we have communities that people can connect with. So, but I would imagine that's not the case in most states. Right, right. So what's your recommendation, for example, for a couple, for a wife that kind of like curious or kind of worried that her husband is gay and she wanted to explore it or he wants to explore it? What are some of the tools that they can use that you recommend people to go to? Obviously, you're at Michigan, right? So if they're there, I think you'll be a great resource. What What are some other resources? So I do a lot. I see people all over the world with coaching and consulting. So I have people in like Saudi Arabia, I have people in Egypt, I have people in New York that consult with me on this because there really isn't a lot of therapists who understand it. And so that's one resource is me, my books, my writings. But then if you go to joecourt.com, my website, and you, you click on mixed orientation marriages, I have a list of Yahoo groups that are confidential. Oh, interesting. Can, yeah, they're great. Um, there's something called alternate paths, husbands out to wives. There's a whole list of them. And th- those two, though, are the top ones that my clients get a lot of a lot from. And, and some of these have conferences they go to once a year. So they're really, really helpful in working it through because you need this kind of support. Absolutely. And again, as, as someone who works in this field, I don't know that many good, solid, kind of in more in-depth uh, resources like yours. So uh, and I make sure I put the, all the links to the show notes so you can people, people can have access to it. Is there anything else that you want to share with our clients before we end our conversation today? Just that there's hope and, and that sadly there's no community to go to. So like when you're bisexual or when you're gay or lesbian, even trans, there's a community that are, are with open arms. In this situation, when you're struggling with being sexually fluid or being straight and having gay sex, there's no community for him and there's no community for her and there's very little community for them as a couple. And I mean, I hope that changes someday. I, I don't have the, the energy or the time to make a community other than be available myself. But um, I just think it makes it harder, but it's not impossible to work through. Thank you for sharing your insight with us and your time. And this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to teach this. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope this interview helped you to understand the complexity of one's sexual orientation. And I highly recommend Dr. Court's book. He talks about different stories of the clients and provides example in his book on why someone might engage in specific kind of sexual behavior. And he might be attracted to same sex partner, but not be necessarily gay. Anyhow, I just want to remind you, if you have a question that you want to get answered, feel free to record the question in our website, which is sexologypodcast.com, and we might feature it in the show, and 
I'll give you an answer. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.